welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by our guest speaker. Join us as we are pointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's holy word. Wow, I'm delighted for a number of reasons this morning, not just to be here with you in your new facility, uh, but uh, to be able to uh, see just the uh, the movement of the Spirit of God in leading as far as the number of the scriptures have been read, the songs that have been sung, that they relate uh, to uh, much of what we're going to be considering from the Word of God this morning. Also learned this morning that in your, um, what's it called again uh, in the morning at 9 o'clock? Connections. Connections. That's it. Excuse me. A new word for me. Uh, I'm pretty disconnected. That's, that's obvious. Um, and that you've been beginning uh, your, to work your way through the, the book of Galatians. Oh, I was thrilled to hear that. I was hoping that I wasn't going to uh, be duplicating some of your study, uh, but uh, find out that I'm going to be moving, looking at a passage a little further on in the book this morning that, uh, uh, that you've not yet reached. And uh, the book of Galatians is just, oh, so full. I, I've just, in, its, in my most recent study of it, I have just been thrilled to see the things that, uh, that are in that book, uh, it, the clarification in my heart and mind of the, uh, of the gospel and how crucial it is. And I find it, uh, John, you know, you just began, uh, you know, in your catechism time, as you, you mentioned, that you gave the challenge to, uh, to be able to articulate the gospel in a very short period of time. Many people, I find, can't even articulate the gospel at all. As a matter of fact, I have a bit of a story just in, in, in that only, I thought, decided to share as a result of of what you shared there. Back when my, my children were te in their teens, they would occasionally bring home uh, an individual that they may have been interested in. Uh, the guys would bring a gal, and my one daughter would bring a number of guys, you know, from time to time. And uh, I would often, uh, almost always, uh, would take the opportunity to ask that particular individual if I didn't know them, uh, or even if I did, uh, what is the gospel? And boy, oh boy, was I surprised, even as my children were, at the varied and sundry responses that I received to that question. One young man said, uh, you mean like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And so as we continued to talk about that, no, that was not what I was considering at that point. A young lady that uh, my eldest son brought to the house one time, I asked her, and she made a feeble effort to articulate something. And in speaking with my son later on, his jaw dropped and said, Dad, I couldn't believe what I heard because it, it just cut away the fat. And very clearly could you see that there was a lack of understanding. And I feel that I have come to the understanding at this point that if you cannot articulate what the gospel is, how can you believe it? How can you believe it? The whole book of Galatians is about distinguishing between the true and the false. And as you've been studying in the book of Galatians, you and I'm grateful because I don't have to go back and, and, uh, and build a, a foundation for you. You understand that the Galatians were ones who had, 
had believed and they were pressing on, but there was, there was an influx of false doctrine. The Judaizers, as we call them, were trying to communicate to the Galatians that, that in order to re be true Christians, they needed, yes, to believe in Christ, but they needed to become Jews, in essence. They needed to enter into uh, the ritual of circumcision. They, need to be, they needed to be obedient to the law of God, and that was going to really cement their relationship with God. Well, and Paul, throughout this entire book, is trying to combat that false doctrine. And you know what? It is so prevalent today. And as a matter of fact, have you ever heard somebody tell you, well, that God in the Old Testament, why he's so harsh and mean and, and judgmental. Ever heard anybody say that? Sure you have. But the God of the New Testament is so kind and, and loving and forgiving. I, I want to believe in the God of the New Testament and, and not the God of the Old Testament. Or perhaps you may have heard someone say this. Well, the Old Testament, God brought law through the Jews, through the Israelites. And that was his first plan. That was plan A. But it didn't work out very well, so he had to go with plan B. In the New Testament, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You ever heard people refer to that? Well, the first plan didn't work out, so God had to go with plan B. What's the definition of plan B? Well, the original definition was an alternative plan of action for use if the original plan should fail. Interestingly, that that understanding of that phrase, of plan B, really didn't come into understanding in, in our vernacular until about 1977. That was when it was first used uh, with that understanding of meaning. However, do you know what the most common usage of that phrase, Plan B, is today in our current culture? It refers to the morning after contraceptives, that of the abortion pill. That is the most common understanding of Plan B in our day and age. I was aghast to learn that, that that is what it has become. You know, the Judaizers were right in one perspective in that they believed that there was only one plan, plan A, just one problem. They got the wrong plan A. They believed it was through the law, and that's what they kept trying to promote to the Galatian church. They were wrong because they missed the right plan. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Galatians chapter 3, and I so appreciate the reading of this portion this morning. Uh, let us ask God to speak to our hearts and to make clear how crucial our understanding of his gospel is, especially in this day and age when so many walk in confusion and misunderstanding of the truth of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging our desperate need for you 
to help us understand what you have revealed to us through your holy word. Our only hope in life and death is the truth of your word, of what you have revealed to us. And that has never become more clear to my own heart than it has in these last months. That is what we have to cling to, what you have revealed to us. We have nowhere else to go. And Father, you have made your word, your truth clear. There's a lot that we don't understand, but we're responsible for what we do understand. And this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand this passage, even as the Apostle Paul presented it to the Galatian church, that we would come away with a clearer grasp of the truth of the gospel and be able to understand and articulate it in our own hearts and with our own mouths to an unbelieving world. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and do here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we began to think about this morning, there's no such thing as a plan B. And God's plan in dealing with men and women, providing salvation, has always been the same from Genesis through to Revelation. There's no change. It has always been by grace through faith. And as we mentioned, the Judaizers were trying to teach the Gentiles that they needed to become Jews in order to truly be saved. Paul reminded, you know, in the first five verses of this chapter, and so much as we, we go back in Galatians, that they had come to faith in Christ. And that was where they rested in his finished work. And in the first five verses of this chapter, he reminds them, did you start by faith and now you're shifting to works? And it makes no sense. So he, he asked them to examine their experience. And that's, that's an important principle today. We have a lot of people that will, will say, well, we need to understand the word of God by means of our experience. My friends, there's another reversal. We need to understand our experience in the light of the Word of God and His revelation to us, not the other way around. So Paul here in this section that we're going to look at here in verses 6 through 14, he proves that justification by faith has always been the plan that God put into practice. We're going to see a proof of righteousness and justification through faith from the Old Testament using the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham, as the proof positive in verses 6 through 9. Secondly, we're going to see the proof that of what the works of the law could not do for us in verses 10 through 12. And then finally, we're going to see the blessings that Christ brings to us in the last two verses of 13 and 14. <clears throat> now, it's true that as we begin and we think about what did Adam and Eve understand? Well, God gave them a very simple set of instructions. I give all of this to you. And it's fabulous to see that in chapter 2 of Genesis, he uses the very same phraseology, and he tells Adam, he says, I planted the garden, and it was 
It was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Those are the very phrases that Eve uses to describe why she should disobey God because it was she looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thought it's good for food and it's pleasing to the eye. And she added in there, and desirable for gaining wisdom. But do we gain wisdom by disobeying God? No, not at all. And so the very things that we hunger for, God has already provided. We just tend to want to rip it out of the context that he intended originally. Wow. I won't take time to, to build on that, but that principle is crucial. God made us. He knows how he designed us. And we know that he only wants his very best for us, his people. We can trust him. But Adam and Eve didn't know very much other than that singular test, and they failed it because they chose to believe the lie. Even as John 8, Jesus says, Satan is the father of the lie. What's the lie? Right back there in Genesis chapter 3. And Satan undermines God's authority, and he undermines God's truth, and he lies and outright, outright contradicts what God revealed to Adam and Eve. So the idea of what we have here, we have to consider that throughout the Old Testament, we have what's referred to as a progression of revelation. Adam and Eve knew a little bit, and then in Genesis 3.15, they were given, and so were we, given the very first promise that someday from the human family, one would come who would crush the serpent's head. The Redeemer would someday come. They were told that, and so are we. And they didn't know much. As we move along, we have Cain and Abel. And what do we see there? Abel, what did he know? God must have revealed to him a blood sacrifice was necessary. And so he brought that in obedience. His brother Cain did not. God gave him an opportunity to turn from what he was trying to substitute there, and he became infuriated and struck down his brother. But Abel was given a little bit more revelation. And even in, in Genesis chapter, the very end of chapter 3, we see the whole idea of blood being required by God. He clothed Adam and Eve in what? Skins of animals. Who killed them? God himself. It was required that those animals, their lives be given up. Their lives be, their blood be shed in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve and their sin. What a picture. What a picture from as early on as we can get back. Well, we move on through down, uh, through the Old Testament, not only by faith. We go to Hebrews 11, and we have a list of men of faith. Uh, we have Noah next. How much did he know? Well, he knew what God told him. And what was his response? A response of faithful obedience, even as it was for Abel. Then we move on to Moses. What did Moses understand? Well, it says Moses' parents, that they hid him. They saw that God placed in their heart. He was no ordinary child. They defied the edict of Egypt, and they protected 
their son, and God protected him. They saw that. What a marvel. And then Moses himself, he, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh. He chose to be mistreated. He believed God. And it tells us later on in Hebrews 11 that he was looking ahead toward a reward. Oh, not the temporal reward that Egypt could offer, but an eternal reward. And by faith, he kept the Passover. And by faith, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. All of these, it says, as a culmination in Hebrews 11, were commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. They looked forward, believing what God had promised, that he would accomplish it. What were they believing? They believed whatever God told them to believe, and they acted upon it. They responded in faith and obedience to whatever God told them. And as a result, it was credited to them as righteousness. And one of the clearest examples in all of the Old Testament of that faith expressing itself in obedience was none other than the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. And so Abraham is now the focus of Paul's argument here. He uses Abraham in this portion as a proof. This isn't just a commentary that Paul brings on on Abraham, but he actually goes back to the Old Testament scriptures and he reveals to the Galatians and to us and to the Judaizers, he's setting it forth before them as well because his longing would be that they would be brought to a point of truly trusting Christ and not their own works. He was going to use the Old Testament scriptures to prove that faith in God has always been the basis for justification. So let's look at these first few verses, verses 6 through 9. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, whether Jews or Gentiles. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. The gospel? That's right. That's what Paul says, that God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed through you. That's the gospel message in its kernel form. So that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, without a doubt, the Judaizers would look to Abraham as proof of the fact that, oh, you had to be like Abraham. You had to be circumcised in order to please God. Why, Genesis 17 is where we have that command given to Abraham. Yet we need to understand that it was just an outward symbol of God's covenant with the Jewish nation. It came through Abraham. Circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin of the male procreative organ, signified the need to cut away sin from the heart, sin that was inherent. Gentlemen, the one 
thing we have given to our children as an inheritance is our sin nature. That is what we have passed on. And gentlemen, we need to be consciously aware of that and with God's help seek to teach and instruct and undo that by leading our children to faith in Christ, the only hope for survival. Now, we've passed it from one generation to the next. Well, the Judaizers would say, well, it's obvious then that if you want to be able to share in the blessings of Abraham, you need to be just like him. But verse 6 of this passage we're looking at says, even as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, and that is quoted for us out of Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, what's going on in Genesis 15? Well, I'm just going to give you a quick overview. It won't take time to, to turn there. We're going to look at some other places here shortly, but we're going to try not to jump all over the place. But let me just bring you up to speed here in case you can't remember exactly what happened in Genesis 15. Abraham says, Ah, oh, Lord, my life is useless. I'm going to have to give my inheritance to my servant because I don't have any kids. You call me Abram, great, exalted father. Just one problem. I'm not a father. What else is going to happen? And God says, do what? Look at the stars. So shall your, so shall your numbers be. A son will come from your own body, and he will be your heir. And God had repeated all the way back in 12, and then repeated over and over, I will make you into a great nation. How's that going to happen? I don't even have one son. Well, God says, it will happen. I will do it. And in its simplicity, Abraham simply believed God at what he said. What an incredible All he knew was that God promised he would do this. And as a result of Abram's faith, it says that God counted that, credited that to him as righteousness. Rightness. Because you believed me. Abraham's response of faith is just one thing here. The Judaizers would say, well, you, 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 need to, you need to be circumcised. Is that what did it? Is that what got Abraham in? No. Because you know what? Circumcision and that command wasn't for another 14 years down the line. So this statement here by God about Abraham saying he believed me, I credit to you, credit to you as righteousness, was way before the rite of circumcision. Had nothing to do with circumcision. It was before that. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 4? It's a, it's a crucial passage, and it's amazing again, because it was, it was communicated again in, in uh, our pre- Service as we were considering uh, these principles. 
Romans chapter 4. Turn with me. If you're not there, try to get there. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this manner about faith? In fact, Abraham was just, if he was in, he was in fact justified by works, then he had something to boast about. But Paul says, nope, he had nothing to boast about. In verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The identical passage from Genesis 15 that we just saw in Galatians 6, or Galatians 3 rather. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. Let's stop there for just a minute. How many of you work for a living? Come on, hands up. All right. Now, how many of you actually have a boss that you, I'm not talking about your wives, <laughs> that you, you actually go to and at the end of the week or, you know, two weeks or maybe a month, and he hands you a paycheck? How many of you have that? Maybe you're, some of you are self-employed. I don't know. You know, so that wouldn't happen unless you hand yourself a check, which, you know. But, <laughs> but those of you with a boss, you get your check on payday, and what's your response? Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for giving these to me. Is that what you do? Not. You do not. Give me that thing. That's what you do. And then you run to the bank. Why? Because you earned it. That's what Paul's saying here. It's not credit to you as a gift, but as an obligation. Your boss owes it to you. That's very important to understand because that's not what forgiveness and salvation is all about in Christ. We only deserve one thing. And you know, a lot of people have a hard time saying this. I deserve death and hell. I have met people that can't get those words out of their mouth because it is so sobering and frightening. Can you say it with me? I deserve death and hell. That's all we deserve. Nothing good at all. So God is, it's a good thing he's not perfectly just. Well, he is in that he provided the payment to take that place. We can talk more about that here. Let me just move on a little further in Romans 9. Romans 4, verse 9. I'll get it right here in a minute. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, this forgiveness? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And Paul clarifies that here for us. It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but not, have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. He's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of their faith of their father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. So the whole relationship between circumcision and salvation in the mind of the Judaizers was backwards. And what were they doing? They were 
Galatians, to be real believers, to be circumcised, then you'll be in. And Paul is saying, my dear friends, no. It is by faith that we enter into the righteousness. That's it. It is by trusting what God has done through his son. He is his person. He was God in the flesh. And what he has done, his work, what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. You know, if you want to cut away all the fat, he to, is that me? Oh, I thought we had, you know, engineers doing something over here or whatever. Just let me know if, I'm, if I need to do something different. Throw something at me, whatever. Okay. I forgot where I was. Circumcision was nothing but an external symbol of an inward reality, much like baptism is for us in the church. It doesn't get us closer to God. It's just an outward expression of an inward reality. What is a true Jew? I won't take time, um, especially since it's almost 2 o'clock. I see that. I guess I've gone longer than I, I thought. Um, we have a number of passages. Romans chapter 2, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcise your hearts. Therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out on you and burn like fire. He's looking at the heart. It's not the physical anything. It is the response of the heart that God longs for. And we won't take time. Colossians 2 is another one. The Jews of Jesus' day relied heavily on Two things. They're thinking on both circumcision and their racial connection with Abraham as descendants of Abraham. Huh. John the Baptist straightened that right out, didn't he? He says, you brood of vipers. Well, another translation which I like is, you sons of snakes. <laughs> to the Pharisees. It's like, oh my word, that's, that's them fighting words, John. Those are, those are pretty stout. And then, then he goes on and he says, don't think that just because you're descendants of Abraham that that means anything. Walk in obedience to the Lord because of your faith in God. And he says, just because you think you're, you're in because you're Jews, God, and I can't, I just, can you picture this? Picks a rock up. And he says, excuse me, my nose is running. I have to go catch it. Picks a rock up and says, God can make sons of Abraham out of these stones. Wow, does that put you back down on the ground level, so to speak? That doesn't, I, I'm nothing. And we need to come to that point. But the amazing thing is that Abraham wasn't only justified simply by faith, but what, what do we see as a habitual response in his life? It was his obedience because of his faith. In Genesis 12, what, what, was, what was the challenge there? God says, Abram, pack it up and get out of here. And I, just to make it a little more interesting, I'm not even going to tell you where I'm going to send you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that right now with the relative simplicity, except for the price of gas, 
to pack up and, and take your belongings, your family. I mean, this family over here, I mean, sorry, she's, this, you, all, you snuck kids in here that I didn't know you, you could put them in places like that. <laughs> you had a stroller, and there was one hiding underneath there that was like, where did he come from? You know, it's like, what in the, where, you know, it's okay. You're allowed to bring children in here. It's not like the movie theater where you don't have to pay for them, you know, if you, if you can sneak them in. You know, so it's all right. You know, you can show them off. It's, it's okay. They're good, well-behaved. Are they still here? Or did you send them away? Oh, okay. Maybe they're not so well-behaved. I don't know. Anyway, John straightened out the Jews of his day. Abraham left his home by faith. That required action for him to leave. In Genesis 15, what did he do? He believed God at that point that he would have a son with his wife, Sarah, even though they were 90 and 100. In Genesis 22, he was willing to believe God and to act in obedience by sacrificing his son up to the last moment. Oh, I can't imagine the agony. And yet, he didn't flinch until God said, hold it, now I know. Now I know. And what was that dependent on? His action, his response. His faith led to that response. Abraham believed, and he was looking what? Forward to the cross. Why do I say that? I say, well, the cross wasn't in view, but my dear friends in Romans 8.56, it tells us that Abraham, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And they said, well, they didn't get that. Because you're not even 50 years old. Well, they were right about that. And you're not even 50. How could you, how could Abraham, how could you know Abraham? Well, and then he says, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, they didn't like that one either. They understood exactly what he meant. Abraham looked forward. The saints of the Old Testament Look forward to the promises. Yeah, there are portions in Hebrews, again, that, that bring that. All these people still living by faith, we read, when they, they were living by faith when they died, and yet they did not receive the things that were promised. That didn't stop them. Abraham looked forward. All of the Old Testament saints, so many looked forward to the coming. What do we do? We have the joy and blessedness of 2020 hindsight. We get to look backward at the fact of the cross. It's revelation to us, what it means, what was accomplished there. How, what amazing. Brother, you just keep saying it. It's like saying, sick him to a dog. I appreciate, I appreciate that. So Paul builds this, and, and he, he confirms this by stating, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. That's your connection to Abraham, not circumcision. It's trusting what God has said and acting upon it. Point made, says Paul.
Well, next, in this passage, he another portion in the Old Testament. Again, it's wonderful that he goes back using the same considerations that the Judaizers would use, and he straightens them out, and he straightens us out so that we'll have a clear understanding of the gospel. Verse 8, Scripture foresaw, there it is, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed you. It was repeated in Genesis 18, Genesis 22, Genesis 12, Genesis 28. We could look at those passages. We won't take time to do it. What's the conclusion then? That they are of the faith and are blessed with faithful Abraham. They that are of the faith are blessed with, fable, with faithful Abraham. In other words, in the clearest possible understanding of the Old Testament saints, they were looking forward. Same faith. Well, now, in verses 10 through 12, he gives another proof of what the works of the law couldn't do. And that's important for us to understand, for us to grasp always been by through faith. In verses 10 through 12, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Now we need to pick this apart for a couple of minutes. The Judaizers not only required circumcision, but what else? You gotta keep the law. How confusing. You see, it wasn't by faith at all. It was works from beginning to end with them. Abraham, as we saw in the previous verses, was declared righteous 14 years before circumcision was commanded. But more than that, now that we're talking about the law, had the law been given yet? No. Do you know that the law wasn't to come through Moses for another 500 years? Well, and there were many other Old Testament saints, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that lived and died before the written law was given. What were they doing? Were they keeping the law? No. They were trusting in what God had said and promised. So Paul proves now that the law has never been the source of forgiveness in the hopes that the Galatian believers, maybe even the Judaizers, would grasp that principle. Obedience to the law was useless. We're going to talk about what the law was there for in just a moment. But Paul says this, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Verse 10, for cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything. There it is. Everyone, everything, twice mentioned there. Cursed is everyone who does not continue. It comes out of Deuteronomy 27. Verse 26. Do I need to go ahead and change something? 
Are you going to tolerate that? I'm sorry. I'm very staticky, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> this Deuteronomy passage that Paul quotes from here proves that righteousness can't come by means of obeying the law. Why? Well, if you were going to require that you have to live under the law, then the reality would soon hit you, the fact that I can't do it. I can't do it. Because no one can fulfill the law perfectly. No one. Thus, you were cursed under divine judgment because you couldn't fulfill it. And Paul even confessed that in Romans 7, trying to follow the law. I'll read just a verse or two here. I found that the very commandment, the law, that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. And later on he says it was by the law that I became aware of my sin. Ah. Law is condemned. That's it. It's useless for anything else. Have before a judge, because you have a speeding ticket, I'm not going to ask you for anything worse than a speeding ticket. <laughs> any, 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 yeah, because you may, I don't know, we may, have some, we may have some very interesting things going on here. But, okay, we got one on a scale right here that, raise your hand, yes, I've had to stand for it. Okay, when I was 16, I had to stand before a judge. I, I was speeding. Okay. Is that a comfortable thing to do? Oh, no. Not at all. Well, those of us in New Mexico, this particularly fits, you know, because you here in Texas, you have speed limits that are like, you know, 90, 100 miles. I don't know what you do. Way out there. Um, and, and, and you're coming in. If you can come into New Mexico and you're driving along and all of a sudden you're, yeah, oh, my, 55? What was... What was I just came out of Texas. It's like, <laughs> and then and you're looking in your rearview mirror, and you're like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh. All the law can do is make you aware of your sin and condemn. That's it. That's all it's good for. That's all it was intended for. We needed to recognize our desperate need. The Jews sought to make their own righteousness by doing it, works, all these externals. They refused God's righteousness, and Romans again lays this out. Paul says they were zealous, yet not based on knowledge, since they didn't know that the righteousness that comes from God, they didn't know that, and they sought to establish their own. And because of that, they didn't submit to God's righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ. What a heartbreak. So Paul continues to clarify that principle regarding faith in verse 11. Clearly, he says, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And he takes and he plucks that passage right out of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. He, there it is. It's right there, and he just rips it out and says, here, see? God gave that as a revelation that it was by means of faith, and it proves that righteousness must come by means of faith, by grace through faith, 
And then he sums it up again in verse 12. The law is not based on faith, but on the contrary, that the man who does these things will live by them. Well, now wait a minute. The Judaizers say, see, you've got to keep the law. Well, there's just one problem again. That's out of Leviticus 18. And there he's saying, if you want to live by the law, you're stuck with having to fulfill it all. The Judaizers would love to have used that, but the problem is you can't. And that was their condemnation. If you're relying on the law to make you right with God, then you have to live with it perfectly, and you can't. So Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, always when he revealed the depths of the sin in our hearts, he always went beyond the law. You know, it's interesting. You know, somebody says, well, hey, I tithe. I, that's right. Well, that was, a, that was the law's requirement, a bare minimum. What's the New Testament principle? Give according to what God has blessed you with. Why would we do less than the law? Jesus said, the law said don't commit murder. What did Jesus say? Don't hate your brother. The law said don't commit adultery. What did Jesus say? Don't lust. He always, oh, the... The, the true intent of there, the depth of the heart and our sin, ah, was there. And under this statute, this standard, who's not guilty? Anybody not guilty here? Raise your hand. What do we deserve? Death and hell. And God pronounces guilty. That's it. James 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point, you're guilty as if you'd, you'd, you'd broken it all. Oh, I don't like that passage, but that helps me to see my need for Jesus Christ. We don't have time this morning, I wish we did, to be able to compare because there's confusion about, well, James says, you need it works. And Paul says, you don't need works. Aren't they in conflict with each other? Let me just summarize it by this. James is saying, the works that I want to see in your life are the result of your faith in Christ. Paul is saying, the works that I don't want to see are the works of the law. That's where they're not in conflict with each other. Their focus is different. That's a real quick summation, but I hope that that would clarify some things there. If you depend on your own work, you have no play. But if you have faith in Christ, he is our only plea. I love this hymn. My hope is built than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. He's done it all. And you know, the last verse of Galatians 2, if I can get back to it, is probably to me one of the clearest proclamations of the uselessness, the futility of trying to earn your way to heaven. And this is what Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, 
and that's what you're preaching, that's what you're teaching, then Christ died for nothing. That wipes away all of that misunderstanding. Would I dare to proclaim that Jesus died for nothing because I really, I could have done it on my own? No. It is totally dependent on him. In summary, we wrap up and look in the last two verses. The blessings that are brought to us through Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That little prepositional phrase is so crucial because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And finally, in 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit of God. Two blessings here. Well, that for us, he became a curse for us. He bore our curse. Now he quotes again out of the Old Testament. After an execution of a criminal in the Old Testament, a person was hung on a tree until sunset. Why? Because he was a lawbreaker. And the lawbreaker wasn't cursed because he was put on a tree. He was cursed, or he was hung on a tree, because he was cursed by his sin. Do you understand the difference? The being placed on the tree didn't cause the curse. That wasn't the curse. The curse was they're guilty, and therefore they were hung on a tree, and then taken down at sunset. Likewise, Jesus bore our curse for us. He wasn't cursed because he was crucified. He was crucified because he took our curse. He was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the truth. He became the guilty one in our place. He bore it all. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So whoever puts their trust in Christ has had the curse born for them. He bought you if you will only believe, if you will only receive him. And the final verse, he redeemed us, and we have two purpose clauses here, in order that, and then, and then he says that, so that, that's later on in the verse. The first, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ, so that, by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit of God. Uh, I'm just going to just consider that last phrase. What is so crucial and important about the gift that God has given to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ of his spirit to dwell within us? Well, one of the clearest passages I see is in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, you also, writing to them, to the, the, the variety of churches, we're working our way through Ephesians right now, and it wasn't just written to Ephesus, but all of the churches in the area, he goes, you too, Gentiles, were included in Christ when you, what's the first thing you had to do? When you heard the word of truth. You've got to hear it. You've got to hear the message. That means, guess what? You've got to know how to articulate it. Second, you believed. You believed 
And third, God did something. You were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He places within every one of us who are trusting Christ alone. And he says, deposit, that Spirit of God is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And the term he uses there, and if you ever, I don't know if they even still use the word earnest money. Do they use that when you buy a house? You want the house, you say, wow, I really want that. Let me talk to my wife about it. But you know, I'm almost positive. I'm going to put down some money here so that you can't sell it to somebody else. And then I'll make the arrangements and we'll go through the whole deal. So you put down what's called earnest money. That's the, that's the picture here. What happens if you decide, ah, you know, I talked to my wife. She says, I'm from outer space. She doesn't think that's a good house. What happens? What happens to the earnest money? You lost it, folks. You better know what your wife wants, okay, before you, before you plunk that down, all right? So that's the picture. God gives to us the earnest of our inheritance, that down payment of the Spirit of God, guaranteeing what's to come. We have been redeemed from our past sin. We are being redeemed. We're being sanctified in our walk with Christ now, and we will yet, but it ain't happened, folks. It hasn't happened yet. We will be redeemed, our bodies. We're kind of connected to these things, aren't we? Just a little. God's part of the package plan of salvation includes the redemption of our bodies. That's a marvel. And the gift of his spirit is proof that he's going to go through with the full contract. He's going to fulfill it. That is his blessing to us. Hallelujah indeed. What a savior. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 10.30 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near UTEP. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.